would not go, but then later he does go and work in the field. And in many ways, this parable, as we saw at the end of last week, was um, acting as a, as a mirror to these Pharisees. He's saying to the Pharisees, in, uh, in the Pharisees, I, the chief priests and the elders, is particularly the ones in focus here. And he says to them, particularly, you know, you consider yourself to be more righteous than these prostitutes and these tax collectors. But you yourself understand that justice and righteousness has to do with the thing that is done, not merely what you say you're doing with your lips. You can put on a show of righteousness before the people, but I tell you that prostitutes and tax collectors enter the kingdom of God before you. He points them back to John's baptism where they had gone to enter the waters of of repentance and they had been turned away saying, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, right? It was the sinners who had their face turned towards Jesus as a savior, but it was the self-righteous who were turned away. And so Jesus then goes on to deliver this second parable. And so as I've I've sought to figure out how to um, give this to you in in a helpful way this morning with very limited preparation. I, I promise I have not felt so underprepared for a sermon um, for some time. So I ask for your patience. Um, what Jesus is doing here is fascinating. When you think of uh, going to a text like this and trying to exposit it, many times we're paying attention to what type of literature it is. And so first we're in the Gospels. It's a narrative that we find ourselves in. But Jesus then delivers a parable. And a parable requires a particular way of handling its text. And we have to deal with it as with a parable. But then as the Pharisees interact with that parable, Jesus takes the Pharisees and writes them into a psalm. And it's not just a psalm, it's a prophetic psalm, a prophecy about this cornerstone. And so we have, we have a narrative, we have a parable, we have a psalm, which is a prophetic psalm, and it's condemning to the Pharisees. And it can be difficult to get your hands around it to say, okay, what what really is going on? And yet at the same time, what is being said is quite clear, I think, in terms of the the testimony that is born. So we're going to do this. First, I'm going to recount the story. We want to leave it as a story because this is the way Jesus told it. And then we're going to understand its meaning. And then we're going to work to see how does Jesus take that meaning and give it to the Pharisees in a way that would confront them. So there's these two threads, really, that we want to pull on, okay? The two threads are, one, the parable, this image of of the vineyard of the Lord and its purpose and what Christ had labored over it to do and how God is going to take that from the tenants that were overseeing it and give it to another people. And the second thread is this idea of the cornerstone, which was laid in Zion, that is, of God's own hand, He put in Zion and Jerusalem a stumbling stone, which would cause the many people to trip over. It was a snare to many, and yet it was a sanctuary to some. So we have this vineyard, we have this cornerstone, and how do these things intersect? So let's pay attention first to the story that is given. Jesus says, hear another parable. It's a command. So let's give our ears to what Jesus says. Hear what the Lord has said. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard. So there was a man, a man of some wealth. He obviously had enough wealth to plant this vineyard. He was the master of a household. He has servants that he can send to do his bidding. 
So it's safe to say this, this master of the house was of some power, of some rank, of some wealth. And he goes to plant a vineyard. And what does he do? He puts a fence around it. He digs a wine press in it. He builds a tower and he leases it to tenants. And what are these things? Well, obviously, a fence and a tower. This is for protection and defense. He puts what is necessary in place in order to protect the fruit that he is growing. We would do this in our gardens, wouldn't we? We'd put a fence around it to keep raccoons out. We might turn a spotlight on at night if we hear something out there disturbing it. We would protect the labors of our hands. This is what this master of a house is doing. What else does he do? He digs a wine press in it. That is, he is expecting the ground, this vineyard, to yield fruit. He's, he's ready for the wine that is going to be produced in it. And so he prepares it with all the amenities, all the, the abilities that it will need to produce this wine. It is not as though he just had a dry piece of ground and he gave it to someone. He did all that was necessary to prepare this land for fruitful production. And then what does it say? After doing these things, he went into another country after leasing it to these tenants. Now, this idea of leasing, we can take in two ways. We often think of leasing as um, an exchange for financial um, financial. Property, So someone might lease a house for a certain sum of money. And while you're under a lease contract, that house is yours. This is one way that it could be taken. Another way, though, and something that was more common, was leasing in return for some of the fruits of the land. That is, you would go to someone who is, who is poorer, who could not afford to buy their own land, and you would say, you may take care of this land, you may cultivate it, produce fruit in it, And in return, I will expect some of the produce that it yields. This is the type of leasing arrangement that we're talking about here, clearly from this parable. And so this is the expectation. The master has done all that was needed to prepare the ground for fruit and for production. And he has leased it to tenants graciously and said, take care of it. You may may partake of its produce. You may have its wealth. But in return, I come and I will expect a return for my labor. And so this he does, and he leaves to another country. The idea of the story is that um, in some ways the the tenants are left to do as the master has required of them to do, and the master is not immediately present to oversee it. And then it goes on. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And understanding this way the lease agreement was made, it's obvious what is going on here. He has sent servants. It's that time for fruit to be, um, to be harvested, so he's not sending them early. He's sending them as the, as the season for fruit drew near. He is going to get what is rightfully his. And what do the servants do? The tenants do to the servants, rather. Well, when the tenants took his servants, they took them, they beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Now, as the story goes, if someone sent a creditor to collect a rightful debt and the the one leasing the land killed the creditor, what would be coming next? Well, certainly the law. The law would be coming after them. 
For there is nothing but uh, injustice done on the part of the tenants and justice done for the master. And yet, three times it happens. And after this happens, again, the master sends more servants. And again, the servants stone them. He had sent more than the first time, and they did the same to them. Finally then, as the culmination, the master says, I will send my son. Maybe, maybe they will respect my son. And so he sends not just a servant, not just a hired hand or a loyal a subject, but his very own son. And what do these wicked tenants do? They see the son. They recognize it's the son. And what do they say? Ah, this is the one who will be heir of this land. If we kill him, the vineyard will be ours. The inheritance will be ours. And so, by greed, they kill. They kill the son. And then Jesus seemingly doesn't, uh, doesn't finish the parable, but he leaves it for the elders and the priests to say what needs to be done. It's clear, is it not? What should be done? Justice needs to be served. Justice needs to be done. The master has not been short. The master has not um, failed to uphold his part of the deal. It is the wicked tenants who, after much grace, need to be dealt with. The meaning of the parable, then, is really not in dispute for many commentators and truly not for us as well. We understand what Jesus is saying here. Jesus, picturing this vineyard um, to the Pharisees, uh, in the minds of the Pharisees, this would not have been a new story. Like, oh, that's creative. Where did you come up with the idea of a vineyard? No, the, the prophet Isaiah is replete with this type of imagery, and we've read some of it this morning. right? Jesus planted a vineyard and, and looked for it to produce fruit, and it produced wild grapes. And what does he say? If we, if we were to look back in Isaiah chapter 5, we could continue on with that reading, which we stopped short of this morning. Um, Isaiah chapter 5, in verse, uh, verse 4, What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste, it should not be pruned or hoed. And briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also condemn the clouds, that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. The men of Judah are his plant, pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. And the next several chapters are the woes to the wicked for their evil deeds. So the picture presented to these chief priests and scribes was not a new picture. They knew what Jesus was doing. As, they paint, as he painted this parable for them, they understood. And yet, they call their own condemnation. They understand what is going on here. And that's what I want to see. So, looking at specifically the meaning as we, as we look over this parable, we know the history of the nation of Israel. God had chosen Abraham and given him promises of sure blessing. And he had called that nation, which was um, providentially found in captivity to Egypt, out of bondage and through miraculous deeds brought them to a promised land, a land 
where um, vineyards were to be planted and the fruit of that land was to be bountiful. And yet for all God's provision, for his protection over them, for all the ordinances that he had given them and sacrifices, the signs of, of circumcision and of the Passover and of all the stipulations and trimmings that God had given to them so that they might press forward into what God had called them to be, they delivered wild grapes, thorns, and thistles. And so, what did the master of that house do? Well, we've read our Old Testament. We understand it was not swift. God was not swift to judge them, to wipe them off, to send them into exile, was he? No, he bore with them graciously and gently for years, for hundreds of years, sending prophet after prophet after prophet, man of God, kings, kings that would rule faithfully, and then as kings would rule faithlessly, he would send another prophet, and he would send another king, and he would raise up someone to preserve them, to call them to repentance, and yet what would they do? Time and time again, they would reject the word of the Lord. These, uh, these prophets and priests are like the servants that are being sent again to collect what was rightfully due, looking for the fruit of this vineyard that the Lord had planted. And yet, we come then to this time when Jesus is speaking. And how does he, how does he talk about this time? He says, as, as the time, the season for fruit drew near, as the climax of grace upon grace, the culmination of all his servants sent, what does Jesus do? He sends, specifically, to the Jews first, he sends Jesus, the very Son of God. And how does he send him? Not this first time does he send Jesus to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Realize the master in this parable was sending not troops and armies, but servants. Sending servants. And when he knew that all the other servants were not respected, he sends his very own son. And not with wrath, but with graciousness and kindness, he sends them. Do you see what he says? He says in verse 37, finally he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. He's looking eagerly, expecting for this people to turn to him. And what are the Jews about to do? They're about to kill his son. We are headed quickly, swiftly in the book of Matthew towards the cross where Jesus will be rejected, the Son of God, crucified. And so what is the consequence that is here um, going to be done? What is going to be done with these tenants? Well, God says very clearly, very plainly, through the voice of their own, uh, their own words, right? The chief priests respond to him with, with the very own, their very own condemnation. He said to them, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruit in their season. So this, this kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven on earth, Jesus says is to be taken from the Jewish nation and given to a people bearing fruit 
and giving fruit in its season. And what will happen to those tenants? A miserable death. A miserable death. And so having seen this parable and understood, I think, quite plainly what Jesus is speaking to them, I want to, I want to press into this then and consider what is the point that Jesus is making what is, what is he saying here? Why expound this in a parable? And then as soon as the priests and the elders make a right reply, he, he changes the imagery to this stone that the builders have rejected. And as I, I truly struggled to figure out, what, how, do I, how do I get my head into this? I, I thought it might be helpful for us to ask one question of this parable. And I, I hope... It's the right question to ask. Many times you can go wrong when you ask the wrong questions of the text. And so I pray that you bear with me. But I would ask you, what was the fruit that Jesus was looking for? We, knew, we know much of this parable in the, in the background is the master coming looking for the fruit of this vineyard. And we have already seen in Matthew chapter 21 where he Jesus was hungry and he goes to the fig tree finding no figs on it. He curses it as a picture of the cursing of the nation. And so we know that Jesus is returning to this imagery again and again. I came to this nation looking for fruit and I did not find it. And I would ask, what what is the fruit that Jesus is looking for here? Now it's, it's difficult as we ask that question. We can easily go... Um, Go awry. As we already read in Isaiah chapter 5, we know what Jesus found. He said he came looking for justice and righteousness and found bloodshed. But turn with me back to Isaiah. I, I think this will help us. We're going to go to a few places in Isaiah and then we're going to go to the book of Romans. And let me, let me kind of lay the, the table here so we don't get lost. If you, can, if you bear with me for this point, we're going to turn to several passages. If you get, with, get through this part with me, I think we will be able to understand a little bit of what is going on here. But Jesus is drawing very heavily on the imagery that we find in the book of Isaiah. I hope you can see that. Through, we've, we've seen the vineyard picture being drawn and how this is laid out. And so as we think about this idea of the vineyard and the cornerstone coming up, we want to think, okay, what is Jesus drawing on in the book of Isaiah? And so first I'm going to point us to two two, uh, chapters. So we are already in Isaiah chapter 5. I'll just read that for our reminder um, where he says, um, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts, in verse 7, is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So Jesus is looking for, he's looking for justice, he's looking for righteousness, but he did not find it. Okay, now, we're going to compare that to a, to a section in verse, in chapter 28 of Isaiah. So if you turn there with me, Isaiah 28 and verse 17. Now, I would not typically pluck these two passages and put them side by side to compare them. But the reason I'm doing that is because in 
Isaiah chapter 28, we have this imagery of this cornerstone that Jesus is leveraging in his parable. So as Jesus takes the imagery of the vineyard and the imagery of the cornerstone and puts them together in this passage, that's why I am going to Isaiah and saying, okay, we have the vineyard pictured here and we have this um, imagery of the cornerstone here. And so I'm going to pick up right after, or I'm going to pick up in verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. And then verse 17. And I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line. And hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and waters will overwhelm the shelter. So now think of this with me. He went to Israel looking for righteousness and justice. He did not find it. This is why they were sent into exile. And Jesus speaks, Behold, I have put in Zion a cornerstone, a rock of stumbling, and through him what will be done? Justice shall be the plumb line and righteousness the line. That is, righteousness and justice will be that that dividing mark. The, the, The rule of this nation will be decided upon the grounds of what is just and what is righteous. That is, what is perfect, the line will be plumb. No more will there be crookedness. But the the confusion or the fogginess that is there is to think, okay, but they were cast out for not having justice and righteousness, and yet God is going to make justice and righteousness the plumb line in Christ, and still, how are sinners going to be saved? That's... That's the, that's the struggle. And so we're going to turn to Romans in just a second to see how Paul understands this in terms of the stumbling stone. Um, but one more passage in Isaiah first, just to get the full picture of this, of this stone. In Isaiah, and pardon me, I'm going to look at my notes because my mind went away from it. Um, I believe this is Isaiah chapter 8, yes. Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 11. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, let him be your dread, and he will become a sanctuary. And a stone of offense, and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it, they shall fall and be broken, they shall be snared and taken. Do you see the paradox? This stone is going to be a sanctuary and a snare, it's going to be a stumbling stone, a rock of offense. He's going to be drawing straight lines of justice and righteousness for a people who are crooked and perverse. And yet he's going to be a sanctuary? What is is going on here? So turn with me then. This will be uh, um, close to our final text before we return to Matthew. Turn with me to Romans and chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. And this is what Paul is going to do. He's going to explain something and then he's going to say, 
How does this make sense? Well, it's because Israel stumbled over the stumbling stone. Okay, so what we read first is going to be the explanation of what it means for Israel to stumble over the stumbling stone. Romans chapter 9 and verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles, so he's speaking about this pursuit of righteousness. Um, in fact, I should even, let's, let's back up a little bit more so we get more context here. Uh, verse 27, and Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them shall be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And so, with this we see That the stumbling stone is the pursuit of righteousness through a law. That is, I'm going to seek to establish my righteousness by the doings which I do. And Paul says, this was the cause for Israel's stumbling. They did not pursue the law as if it depended on faith. Or rather, I should restate that. They did not pursue righteousness as if it depended upon faith in the Lord. And so... When I, when I ask the question, let me try to pull this all together if I can for you. When I ask the question in the parable, in Jesus' day, as he comes to the chief priests and the elders, as he comes to the nation of Israel, and he is looking for fruit, as he depicts this parable to them, and is asking that they would, um, that he, he is asking for fruit, he's, he's, he's asking them to see that Jesus is seeking this fruit, and I ask, what fruit is Jesus looking for? I am working out of the understanding that Jesus is not looking for a mere morality. He's not looking for merely a doing of goodness. He's looking for primarily that fruit which belongs to repentance. That is the fruit of faith which rests on the mercy of God. The fruit that only comes by the casting of one's soul upon Jesus for salvation. And I say this because if, even if you think of the parable, what was the final, the final condemnation for these servants? It wasn't a bad yield or a bad crop in the vineyard, and it wasn't their rejection of many servants. Their final condemnation was their rejection of the son. Their rejection of the son. And to think of it another way, also, as we think about the stumbling stone, the, the, big, um, the big idea that I see when I look at the stumbling stone is this idea that Jesus laid the stone. He put it there. With his own hand, he put it there, and he caused it to be a sanctuary for some and a stumbling block for others. Jesus, when he quotes this, the stumbling stone, he's actually not quoting directly from Isaiah. He's pulling it from 
Psalm 118. And if we read Psalm 118, something very interesting will pop out to you. I trust. Psalm 118, it was read this morning as our call to worship. But what we're going to see is that this is the same psalm from which those who cried out in the streets, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were quoting Psalm 118 as well, this same section. In fact, directly following this cornerstone. In verse 19, Psalm 118 Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. So as Jesus looks at the tenants in his vineyard, the chief priests and the elders, and as they confront him, he says to them, Look, you're like tenants in my vineyard. I expected fruit and you have killed all my servants. You have rejected now. You are rejecting even now my Son, but as the people standing in the temple listen to him saying this, he says, he quotes this psalm and he says, as the crowds see, as the people around see, the stone which you are rejecting is becoming the chief cornerstone. You are stumbling over that which everyone else here is seeing, that I am the son, I am the heir, I am the sanctuary But to you, I am that snare. I am that stumbling stone. And this evokes worship, does it not? What does Jesus say in Matthew 21 as he quotes the psalm? He quotes not just the part about the stone, but he adds, This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This was the Lord's doing, and it it is marvelous in our eyes. What's the idea there? In God's mystery, in God's providence, He worked in such a way in Israel to to blind these men, to have them stumble over the Messiah. They found no reason for a Savior like Jesus in their midst. They, They wanted a Savior who was going to triumph, but they did not want a Savior who was going to die for them. They thought they had righteousness, but they did not want to humble themselves in their sin and say, Jesus, I need you as my Savior. But the judgment that comes was to evoke songs of praise. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. It is a profound mystery, isn't it? The way the Lord works many times. We do not see his hand moving. We do not understand his ways. Strange is his work, as the prophet Isaiah says. Strange is his work, but do not spurn the gospel. If I can make this whole thing condensed into one point, that's my point for today. I don't have, it's a complex way of getting there. I I trust you can think through this and, and labor over it even today and ponder what is our Lord and Savior doing. But as I've looked at it, this is the one point that I think Jesus would have us go home with today. And he says, do not spurn the gospel. It's a strange way of working. It's not the way we would 
anticipate. It's not what we would expect. But do not spurn it. I take this from that same book in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 28. We stopped just short of it. He says, or we did, I think we did read it actually. Says, uh, he comes to do his deed. Strange is his deed. And to do his work. Alien is his work. Now therefore do not scoff, lest your bonds be made strong. For I have heard a decree of destruction from the Lord God of hosts against the whole land. The chief priests and the elders have delivered their own destructive decree. They have said that a dreadful death is awaiting those tenants who killed the son. And Jesus not in disagreeing with them, but merely to point out what is obvious and what should have been obvious to them. Do you not see? You are the builders rejecting the chief cornerstone. I am a rock of stumbling to you, and by it you will fall and be broken to pieces. I am the rock which will fall upon many, and they will be crushed. How do you live a Christian life? How do you live within the realm of Christianity for 5, 10, 15, 60 years? And end up stumbling over the stumbling stone and the rock of offense. Well, one way is to live in such a way that you have no need for a Savior. And how is that done? It's done by looking at the law of Christ and giving yourself a passing verdict. Reading the things of the Bible which call us to wonderful, wonderful works that beckon us to to producing fruit, and as we look at them, we say, I've done it. That's me. Woe to those who do not do this. If you build a habit of this, if you enculturate a habit in your own heart of seeking to establish your own righteousness through the doing, you will find no room for Jesus. No room for his work. You will stumble over the stumbling stone that Christ has laid. But if you see Jesus as that sanctuary, that rock, that sure foundation by which all of your sin becomes paid for, and all of your labor for the Lord is done out of gratefulness and thankfulness to him because he has become your salvation then there is much blessing to be seen here. We're going to return to this parable in our, in our closing time. For what does Jesus do with this vineyard? Remember, he comes. He comes in the season, the time for fruit. He finds no fruit. The tenants are wicked. He removes the tenants, and he's going to give his vineyard to who? To whom? Gives it to a people bearing fruit. He says, who will give him the fruits in their season? Or, as Jesus says, and give it to a people producing its fruit. Now this is the characteristic principle of these people now. That is, the people of God are defined as a people who bear fruit to the Lord. It's a, it's a, it's a promise of the gospel that in Christ... There is born much fruit. 
And so as we, as we think about this parable and we think about the condemnation of the Pharisees, I, I want us to consider, one, our need for a Savior, lest we stumble over the stumbling stone and find no need for Christ. And yet at the same time, we are pressing forward into that time, which we read this morning, where God is planting a vineyard that he himself waters, that he himself tends, that he cares for, and which will be fruitful and produce righteousness and justice. And this is, this is a, a mystery, and I, I do not pretend that I can parse this fully for you, but we do understand that Paul says in Romans chapter 8, let's, let's read it, lest I quote it in error, um, Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. And what are we characterized as? We who walk, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh and set their minds on the things of the flesh, and set their minds on the things of the flesh, not to those, but to those who live according to the Spirit and set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. I think many of us, we want to do good things. We want to be upstanding people towards God. We want to be found in God pleasing to Him. And this is good. This is the work of God in your heart to love righteousness and to hate unrighteousness, to hate sin. But how are you going to pursue that doing? Are you going to seek to establish your own righteousness that God would be pleased in you? Or do you understand that God has set his redeeming affection on you in his son? Therefore, setting your mind on the things of the spirit, live in a way that is pleasing to God. You see, the Pharisees, they could not please God. The chief priests and the elders, they could not please God. They knew he was the son. They knew he was the heir to come. And when they saw Jesus, they saw only that he was someone to be triumphed over, someone to be condemned, someone to kill, that they might steal the inheritance. This is what we do when we pursue righteousness as if it depends on us. And we say, I am going to have glory for the works of my own hands. But Christ would say, no, I am your sanctuary. I am your sanctuary. So my, my challenge, I... I um, Apologize for the being long-winded and perhaps confusing this morning. But do not spurn the gospel of Christ. We need it over and over and over again. The reminder that what we do in the flesh is not pleasing to God, but what proceeds from faith, that God is pleased with. Not because we trust our own works, but because Christ has done a work. God laid in Zion a stumbling stone, a rock of offense. May we not stumble over him today, but may we see truly that the gospel of the Lord 
is a marvelous thing. May it be marvelous in our sight what God has done. Let's pray. Lord, your deeds are marvelous. Alien is your work. We do not, we do not understand how is it that you have worked through history in such a way that the very people with such blessings set before them, such pictures of the gospel and such loving kindness and such promises of the gospel given to them were the very ones by which you ordained your son to be crucified and made a ransom for many. Lord, the mystery is profound. And even now today, Lord, as we look to your gospel, we deal with with things that are declared to us and they are higher than us. May we not be found, as these Pharisees were, confronting Christ, having no need for a whole Christ who is end to end our salvation and our hope and our righteousness. May we not be found like that, lest we stumble over the stumbling stone. And Lord, you will get the victory. It is not as though the gospel stands or falls upon any minister of the gospel or on any um, parent or upon any witness. Lord, your people will be saved. Your vineyard will be a fruitful vineyard by your own hand. But woe to those by whom the judgment comes and the stumbling, the temptation comes, Lord. Thank you for your gospel this morning. In your name, amen.